Well, good morning, church, and sure hope you're doing well and surviving these unusual times these days. When I was in the third grade, my parents moved my four sisters and me to Niagara Falls, New York for the winter. Uh, my, my dad's job took us there, and we spent all winter there. And I quickly understood that I was different than the other kids in the 95th Street School. Several reasons that I learned I was different. First of all, this was a wonderland of snow everywhere. And I don't know that we had ever seen snow before we got there. Uh, but beyond that, I right away realized that I wore white galoshes, and all the other little boys at 95th Street School wore black galoshes. Moreover, that's the first time I learned that I spoke differently than other people, that I spoke with an accent, a small-town accent. They spoke New York. I spoke Texan. Now, there was much good about that winter sojourn in Niagara Falls, including the breathtaking falls. However, I did experience for the first time what it is like to be an outsider. Now, let me ask you, have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever felt like you didn't belong to the inner circle, to the inner group? Church, part of our fallenness as human beings is that we love to erect barriers to separate us from them. Our human tendency is to think that my group my people, my tribe is superior to yours. Not just different, but superior. We discriminate. We show favoritism. We show prejudice of all kinds. We have racism and ethnocentrism. That is the, the view that, that my people are superior. My people are better. Now, sometimes this can take a very ugly form like slavery in our nation's history or with the recent tragic killing of the African-American jogger in Georgia. And in the Bible, the Jewish people were blatant about their prejudice. In fact, they openly excluded all who were non-Jews, Gentiles they're called. And they thought they were pleasing God by excluding the non-Jews. Now, this is what happened. The Jews, beginning with Abraham were God's chosen people. But this meant, in the mind of God, this meant simply that God would bless these people so that they could be a blessing to all the other peoples on the earth. And, and God had chosen the Jewish people, not for their sakes only, but, but to, to bring salvation to all the world. But somehow, over the years, over the centuries, this got distorted in their thinking, and they began to feel that God only cared about them and not about all those other people. And over time, they had some very strict rules about this. They never entered the house of a Gentile. They were considered ceremonially unclean. They never allowed Gentiles to enter their houses. They would certainly not eat meals with Gentiles. They would refer to Gentiles, the non-Jews, as dogs because they were ceremonially unclean. And every morning, they would thank God that they were not Gentiles. So, I mean, their ethnic hostility was extreme and obvious. Now, down through the history, uh, 
those of us who are not Jewish, those of us who are Gentiles, we've done no better when it comes to prejudice and discrimination. So we can't look down on them too much. All through the Bible, all through the Gospels, God's plan was focused on Israel. But after the cross, when sin had been paid for, that sin paid for not only made it possible for us to be reconciled to God, but reconciled to each other in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the focus after the cross was no longer on the Jewish people, the people of Israel, but upon all the peoples of the earth who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, upon the church. And the church was and is an international, multi-ethnic, multilingual body composed of, composed of Jews and Gentiles on equal footing. And in fact, the church will include people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. All this glorious diversity united only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, now that happened after the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So at the end of Matthew's gospel, after the cross, Jesus no longer says, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. But now he says, go and make disciples of all nations that is, of all peoples. And in the start of the book of Acts, the very last thing that Jesus will say before he ascends to the Father is found in Acts 1.8 when he says to them and to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now it's all people. Well, how did the early church do when it comes to obeying that command to go into all the nations. Well, the early church was pretty slow about it. In Acts 1 through 7, in fact, they did not move beyond Jerusalem. They stayed in Jerusalem, only dealing with Jewish people. It was only with the great persecution at the end of Acts 7, a persecution that Paul was a part of at the time when Stephen was martyred, it was only at that persecution where they forced to leave Jerusalem. And they began going out to the surrounding areas, Judea, which had Jewish people, and Samaria, which had half-Jewish people, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And so God kind of forces them out of the nest. And it is only in our passage today, Acts 10, that the gospel is going to go out beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And so our passage in Acts 10 is a huge turning point in biblical history as the gospel is going to go out to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles. God was teaching the early church, and He is teaching us today that the gospel needs to go out to all the peoples of the earth, that the gospel must go out to all the peoples of the earth, that the gospel will go out to all the peoples of the earth. And so our passage this morning in Acts 10, first half of the chapter, I'm going to begin by reading the first eight verses of Acts 10. So I hope you've got a Bible with you, a smartphone, an iPad, something. that You can turn there and follow along. It's also going to be on the screens. Acts 10.1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God about the ninth hour of the day. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. 
And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So church, that is how God gets the early church in Jerusalem to go out beyond the Jews. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now, he uses a man by the name of Cornelius, who was a Roman military officer in Caesarea, which was a beautiful coastal city way up in the north. We've got a map that should come up on your screens, and you can see there's Israel. Jerusalem is down south in the middle, and that big red dot representing Caesarea way up on the coast. It was a, a beautiful city that Herod the Great had made. By the way, today when I take tours to Israel, after we fly into Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, our first trip is, is right up, to, up the coast to Caesarea, about an hour and a half bus ride north. And, and we come to Caesarea, which has this beautifully uh, kept amphitheater that existed in the first century at the time of Paul. And, uh, in fact, Paul would have been in house arrest, uh, probably in one of the prison areas underneath that amphitheater. Also, we visit other ruins there, including uh, Herod's palace on the coast and uh, uh, impressive ruins from the ancient world in Caesarea. Now, later in the book of Acts, we're going to find out that Paul would stay in Caesarea two years under in prison on his way to Rome to uh, the emperor. But already in Acts 10, Caesarea is going to play a key place in biblical history. So this is the city where God is going to use a Roman commander to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Milestone event. Now in verse 2 we read that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously, that is he gave generously to the people... And he prayed continually to God. Now, now think with me about this, church. Th think about Cornelius. He, he's a Gentile. He is a Roman military officer. And yet he had been living in Israel. He heard about the God of the Jews, and he believes. In fact, he was a devout man who feared God. And because he was devoted to God, we see two things are true of him. On the one hand, he gave generously to God. And on the other hand, he prayed continually to God. Now, if you are devoted to God, if you love the Lord, then these same two traits will mark you also. First of all, he gave generously. Generous giving is the acid test that we love God, that we're devoted to Christ. If we are not giving generously to God, then let's not kid ourselves. We're not, we're, God is not first in our lives because we give the first fruits to God. If we have income, God gets the first tenth, and we wouldn't think of not doing that. 
The second characteristic is that he prayed continually. Now, now he's not a rabbi. He's not a, a pastor. He's not a biblical scholar. He is a soldier, a commander. And during the day, he's always praying out to God and, and talking with the Lord. God has captured his heart. Prayer shows his faith. If we pray a lot, it shows that we're trusting God a lot. If we don't pray much, it shows that we're not trusting God much. We're trusting ourselves. Prayer is the acid test of dependence upon God. So Cornelius had these two things. Generosity, a test of devotion to God. Prayer, a test of dependence upon God. And, and I just want to pause for a few moments, church, and, and just ask, is the Spirit of God saying anything to you this morning? Speaking anything to you as we look at the life of Cornelius. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day. Okay, so the Jewish day would begin at 6 a.m., so this would be 3 p.m. It's 3 in the afternoon, about the ninth hour of the day. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius. And he, Cornelius, stared at him, the angel, in terror because they were magnificent. And he responds, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, notice how the Bible is emphasizing uh, why God chose Cornelius. It was his generosity and his, and his prayer, continual prayer. It showed his heart for God. And, and the Bible is underscoring that. So these two things matter to God. And then the angel says to him in verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. So Joppa would be 30 miles south down the coast, modern-day Tel Aviv. Uh, Joppa is just south. Our, our kids, uh, Mike and Sarah and their three kids, live just on the north side of Tel Aviv today, Herzliya. Joppa, or modern-day Yafo, is just south of Tel Aviv, about 30 miles. But it'd take a couple of days for those men to walk down to get Simon. And so um, the, the men head off immediately. Now, interesting, all through this passage, God is going to send visions and an angel, and he's going to communicate in various ways. God sends an angel from heaven to speak to this Gentile who's going to be the the, the man that God uses to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But yet the angel, God speaks to the angel who speaks to Cornelius and tells him to take some of his men and send them to Joppa so Peter could come back and share the gospel. Why doesn't God just have the angel share the gospel? I mean, he could just do it right there. But for some reason, in the Wisdom of God. God uses people to take the gospel, just about always. God wanted to use Peter, and God wants to use you and me to bring the gospel to people around us. God will use us if we're available to him, because we are his witnesses. That's the heartbeat in the book of Acts when Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. We may not be evangelists, we may not be preachers, but we can be witnesses. We can point people towards Jesus, that he's the Savior. 
And so in verse 7 we read, When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So right away, Cornelius uh, obeys just immediately. He gets them, he sends them. Now, that, that, by the way, is another expression of our love for God. We've earlier seen generosity, we've seen prayer, but obedience. Remember in John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And so whatever the Lord says to us, church, we want to obey because it expresses our love for him. Now, let me just step back before we continue in these verses. Why did God choose Cornelius? Why, why would God choose this Roman military officer who represents the proud Roman Empire, the proud pagan Roman Empire? Well, the Bible is underscoring for us twice. In fact, it'll do it a third time later on that two things, his, his generosity, his giving of alms, his continual prayer have risen up as a memorial to God. And it shows his devotion and his dependence. And, you know, we, we see generosity several times in the book of Acts fairly prominently. We see it at the end of Acts 2 where people are helping those who have more financial need. And at the end of Acts 4, we see that uh, those who had a lot would sell off their possessions and, and they would bring the proceeds to the leaders of the church who would distribute to those who had need. So we see it in Acts 2, Acts 4. We see it here in Acts 10. We see it a few significant places. But when it comes to prayer, we see it all through the book of Acts 58 times. At every crucial turning point throughout the book, prayer lies behind it. God is especially pointing out this is how you live the Christian life. In fact, when the church is birthed in Acts 2, what, is the, what are those 120 disciples doing? They're, they're praying. They're in a prayer meeting. Uh, they're praying continually, and God pours out the Holy Spirit. And we see prayer in Acts 2, and we see it in Acts 3, we see it in Acts 4, on and on throughout the, the, the book of Acts. God is showing us today here at Wood's Edge and around the world that the early church was devoted to prayer, and prayer must be our lifeblood if we want to see God work like he did in the book of Acts. God uses people who pray. God uses churches that pray. If we hope to see God do a, a, a big work in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our church, around the, 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 the world, then we must be a people who are devoted to prayer. Okay, verse 9, the scene will shift from Cornelius up at Caesarea down south to Peter in Joppa. And it's a most unusual scene in the New Testament. We see it beginning in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that'd be noon, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once 
to heaven. So three times God gives Peter this picture, and they have that little conversation. Now, first thing to note is when these three men arrive at Peter's house, what is Peter doing? He's up on the roof praying. Uh, do you think God is, is, is emphasizing something here? That do, you, do you see a pattern in the book of Acts? That prayer is always involved at every key turning point in biblical history when God works. God is underscoring for us today that prayer is pivotal for kingdom work. That whenever God's going to do a big work, that he always sets his people to pray. Church, during this time of COVID crisis, can we hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us? Church, pay attention. You can no longer rely on your own resources and power and strength and abilities. Call out to me because you need me. God uses people who are dependent upon God's power, not their own power, and those are the people who pray. Are you one of those people? Church, God is speaking to us. So, Peter, when the men arrive, he's up on the roof praying. God gives him this unusual vision. I mean, there's this huge sheet that's lowered out of heaven, and it's filled with all of these unclean animals. The Jews didn't eat. You know, back in Leviticus 11, God made it clear he had all kind of animals that the Jews were not to eat. Pigs, camels, rabbits, ravens, owls, bats, ants, beetles, lizards, rats, snakes, lobsters, and a lot more. And it's not completely clear why some of these foods are on the list and others are not on the list. But they couldn't eat those foods, and no Jew of that day would dream of eating those foods. And, you know, here's Peter. He's up on the roof, and God is telling him, eat them, eat them. And Peter is arguing with the Lord. Oh, no, Lord, that's against the rules that you set. That's against, I can't do that. And, and, and three times God is saying it uh, over and over. And, and we might be thinking this. We might be thinking, Peter, what's the big deal? Eat the food. You know, it's just lobster. Well, think of it this way. The writer Philip Yancey uh, wrote this. He said, Christians today who enjoy pork chops, scallops, oysters on the half shell, and lobster may easily miss the force of this scene that transpired on a rooftop many years ago. For shock value, the closest parallel I can think of would be if in the midst of a Southern Baptist convention at AT&T Stadium in Dallas, there is a fully stocked bar that is lowered supernaturally down on the playing field, and a booming voice says to all those Southern Baptist teetotalers, drink up. You know, that, that, that gets the, the message, how, how hard this would have been for Peter to, to eat. And so, predictably, Peter is arguing with the Lord. <laughs> and the Lord keeps making that point. Now, let me ask you, do you think God is teaching Peter primarily about food or about people? What's the real point here? Well, it, to some extent, it's both. But his real point is food. What God is teaching Peter and the Jews is that do not, do not 
look at Gentiles as unclean people because I'm going to do a great work and I'm going to take the gospel to all the peoples of the world, including Gentile people. So we see that uh, in the next part. God is saying to them that nobody is excluded from the kingdom. Everybody is welcome in the Christ kingdom, even Gentiles like Cornelius. In fact, the church he's going to teach them is going to be comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Our God is a global God, and he's always been a global God, and we must be global Christians, and our vision must always be all the peoples of the earth. And whenever a diverse group of people come together and they're united only by the cross of Jesus, that exalts God because it shows the power of the gospel. It shows the power of grace. It's a picture of heaven, the, the, the unity and the diversity. And it, it, if some of you are newer here at Wood's Edge, and, and uh, you, you may not realize that part of our explicit dreams here for church is that we would have as much diversity as we can of every kind. Um, must be several years ago, I began counting up how many nations I, I could think of that people here came to. And I, I think I got into the 40s, but I'm sure there are more folks that I didn't realize now. I, I wonder how much it would be now, at least 50, I bet. And, and we want more and more diversities because that inherently exalts the Lord. That's the kind of church that God desires and that's the kind of church that we long to be but but god is teaching them right here everybody is welcome into the kingdom and that must always be your heart not for people who look like you think like you wear galoshes like you and everything else like that but we care about all the peoples on the earth god is a global god we must be global christians okay the final movement of the passage the men from cornelius knock on the door of simon the tanner in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit, another big theme throughout the book, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. That's kind of code for he's a Gentile, but he fears God. He is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. He was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guests. Now, the only reason that Peter would invite those Gentiles into his house is because God had just shown him three times he can't call Gentile people unclean anymore. That was the point of the sheet not just the food, primarily the people. That's the only reason that Peter, a Jew, would invite them to come into that house. And when Peter hears their message about Cornelius had sent for him, an angel appeared to Cornelius to send them here, he immediately agrees to go with them. And the next day, they, sent, they, they start off, and we'll see next week, the fascinating sequel to what happens. But this morning, as we look at our passage, 
in Acts 10, one of the huge watershed passages in biblical history as the gospel now turns not just to Jewish people but to Gentile people and to go out to the ends of the earth. And what God is teaching us is that we too must care about all the peoples of the earth, not just the people who look like us. God is teaching us that he desires every person to be saved and that we must not be a people that erect barriers to exclude others or discriminate against others. That is so contrary to the gospel. When it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no place for prejudice, racism, ethnocentrism, or discrimination of any kind, including the rampant racial tension in our countries and tragically at times in our churches. What we see here is that everyone matters to God and everyone comes equally at the foot of the cross, sinners saved by grace. Now, I realize, church, that in Acts 10, the, the issue was Jews and Gentiles, and that is not our primary issue here today in 2020 in the Houston, Texas area. But we, too, have a tendency to exclude people or feel superior to people who are different than us. Maybe different race, maybe different ethnicity, maybe different language, certainly different politics, certainly a different approach to the COVID crisis and reopening society. And God is saying, let those prejudices go and love people. Respond with love, humility, grace, and acceptance over people who are different than you are. And the book of Acts, the gospel, begins with a small band of 120 Jewish believers. They're all Jews. And by the end of the book, the gospel has been transforming the church till it is this large, international, multi-ethnic, mostly Gentile body that has reached the heart of the Roman Empire and Rome itself. And there are three big themes in the book of Acts over and over and over. First, the spread of the gospel, what I just stated. Secondly, the spread of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit over and over. Thirdly, the spread of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit by a people devoted to prayer. God uses those kind of people. God longs for those kind of people. God wants us right in our neighborhoods and marketplaces and fitness gyms to be part of the spread of the gospel to people who do not yet know Jesus, people in our top five, people in our neighborhoods, people that we run into at HEB perhaps. It means that we must own the lostness on our street and our neighborhood and our circle of friends that we recognize that God has placed us there as witnesses for the gospel. And just as God was drawing Cornelius to himself then, God is at work drawing people to himself now, all around us, during this crisis more than ever, perhaps. And God wants to use us. And so we too must be alert to the leadings of the Spirit, to opportunities to love people and bless people. Remember that acronym, BLESS, begin with prayer, Listen, eat, maybe take food, serve, share, 
God wanted to use people, Peter then, and he wants to use you now. He's not looking for ability, but he's looking for availability. Are you available to be used by God to love people for Christ's sake? Pray with me, church. Lord, thank you that you chose us by your grace and your mercy, that you brought the gospel to the likes of people like us, sinners in need of grace. Lord, may we see people like you see people. May we love people the way you love people. May we bless people the way you bless people. Lord, help us to be a people who care and need your grace. Lord, I need your grace to respond this way. Friend, you may be in your living room this morning and you realize I've never received the grace of God personally. For me, it's been about religion or churchianity or something. Friend, right now, would you just breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, come and save me. And he will do that. He loves you more than you could know. And he died on a cross for your sin. So Jesus, have mercy on you. If you prayed that prayer, he, he heard it, he answered it. He came to your life. You have new life and forgiveness forever in Christ. Lord, we want to be a people that please you. Lord, during this crisis, may we hear your voice that we must be desperate and dependent upon you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.